Welcome back to the Just Josh and Show, the number one podcast dedicated to bringing to you the very best in business, property and life. This week we're joined by Natasha Collins, who's a chartered surveyor, property investor and mentor who runs through her journey in property and some of her biggest mistakes and most importantly how you can learn from them to stand a better chance of success in your property journey. This week's show really is an incredible one with lots of fantastic property information, so do make sure that you've got a notepad ready to be taking notes. Happy listening. Okay, so today, guys, we're joined by Natasha Collins. So, Natasha, how are you? I'm very good, thank you. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for agreeing to coming on and share some of your wisdom. Um, So for those who don't know about you, can you quickly introduce yourself, kind of say what you're about and what is it you do? Yeah, of course. So I'm Natasha Collins. I'm a property investor, chartered surveyor. I run my own firm of surveyors called NC Real Estate, which specializes in asset management. I work with small landlords and property investors to help them grow profitable property portfolios that completely align with their goals through my members club. As well as that, I am a university lecturer and I'm also an ambassador for um, a small charity called Lionheart, which works with surveyors in the RACS. So that is me. That's what I do. Wow. Yeah, certainly a lot there. So must be very busy. All the time. Okay, so yeah, first and foremost, I suppose, um, especially for most people, you're, you're a property investor. So mm-hmm. how many properties is it you've got roughly, if you don't mind me asking at the moment? Okay, so I personally, I've got five. Yeah. That's how many I've got in my name. Um, and that works really, really well. I don't invest in quantity because I don't live in the UK currently. So I invest um for quality i'm all about how much money can i bring in on a monthly basis um, and that is how i've always run my property portfolio i am not about having huge numbers of properties i work with investors who have huge number of properties but for me i do what makes sense to my lifestyle yeah i suppose why you have why, why have 20 properties if you can achieve the objective? I suppose that's the gap we're going to run through as well, kind of how you invest with the outcome in mind. You've got a specific financial objective and you look at the most efficient way to get there through property. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. There's no reason to burden yourself with things that you don't need to do. And I think that is something that, especially in the current circumstance, you know, where we're always on social media and we're always looking at what other people are doing. We see that people buy, 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 but there's a very different um, set of requirements for different places that you buy it. So if you're buying in really cheap areas and you're spending 50 grand on a property and you've got those low yields, yes, you're probably going to be wanting to buy more properties because that's going to increase the value of your uh, estate as a whole should we put yeah. it um but you will then need more properties to get that rental income whereas i've always invested in more expensive areas so i don't need as many properties to get that rental income i mean once i had three properties i was bringing three thousand pounds a month that's yeah. fine <laughs> yeah you know with, with another point it's a kind of a portfolio in the north of england that could easily be 15 properties maybe even more to achieve that Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Um, yeah. And why, why have kind of five times the stress, five times the potential problems? Um, th there's no reason to, is there? Well, no, especially because I run a firm of surveys. I do so much on the side. If I had 20 or 30 properties, that wouldn't fit in with my lifestyle goals. That would really just be completely overwhelming. So for me, this works really, really well. Um, and, and I know we're going to talk about strategy. I think that's where you have to start. What do you actually want your life to look like when you have these properties? Because it, what motivates you shouldn't be the number of keys you have in your pocket. It should be actually, what are you aiming for? What is the point in doing this? If it really is just to rack up a tally, fine, you can keep going for as long as you want to go for, but why are you doing it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's kind of, yeah, literally start with the end in mind. Why is it you're doing it? Um, so I suppose that leads us on to, you know, to the kind of first question. So your first property, would you be able to kind of run us through that? Did you, was it accidental, accidental landlord? What was your first property like? Um, so my first property is the flat that I've got in Notting Hill. Um, I had fallen into the property industry when I was in the third year of my undergraduate degree by accident I needed to get out of my overdraft that I was in so I was applying for every single job I possibly could and a letting agent took me on as an admin assistant so I was doing that at the same time as doing my degree and I was seeing landlords and you know they, they were saying to me well, this is a really good way of earning a little bit of money on the side. Yes, this was during the recession. This was 2009. So landlords were struggling, but still getting by. And a lot of what I was hearing from my clients at the time was that, you know, we're still making money. Yeah, it's not what it was two years ago, but for sure, there's still something going in. So that kind of firstly got my interest. Then I got a job as a graduate surveyor in London and I was working on these massive portfolios. I was running an NHS portfolio. I was working for a landed estate. I have multiple different clients of all different sizes. And one of my uh, clients took me aside and he's like, Natasha, you do this for everybody else. You now need to do this for yourself. Go and buy something. By hook or by crook, pick something up. I don't care how you do it, but just go and find a property to buy. And so I guess naive, me didn't really know anything about buying property at the time so I just started talking to mortgage brokers spoke to a mortgage broker he told me how much I would be able to borrow um, on my salary and also the difference between a buy-to-let mortgage and a residential mortgage at the time stress tests and things were very very different lenders were trying to get people to borrow so I thought fine you know what, I'll buy something. I don't have any money in the bank, but I'll buy something, it'll be fine. Went to my parents, <laughs> I was like, hey guys, I've got this business plan for buying a property. I'd put together this business plan that I thought was you know, really robust. Could I borrow some money from you? They very kindly, because my mum had always wanted to invest in property and um, did a tactical remortgage of their property. They didn't really know what was going on either, but they loaned me 50,000 pounds from a mortgage that they took out of their property on the basis that I paid that additional um, cost of interest, cost of mortgage repayments. That's what I had to do in order to be able to get that 50,000 pounds, which I agreed to. Um, 
And so then I started looking. What I had roughly two hundred thousand pounds that I could spend on a brand new property, which now does not sound like a lot, but at the time you could get one bedroom flats in London for two hundred thousand pounds. If wow. you can believe it or not, this was yeah. two thousand and eleven. Um, so I was around the market and. I mean, it wasn't particularly interesting, but then one of the agents said to me, Natasha, I've got this top floor flat, one bed, um, Notting Hill, you need to come and see it. It's only just come on the market, but I think you would love it. I went over there and I saw it and it's literally 370 square feet, it's tiny, but I was like, yes, this is my first investment. It is in the, a prime location, super close, close to um, tube stations, very good transport links. You could walk to Paddington Station from there. If you wanted to walk uh, any further into London, you could You could walk to, it was just around the corner from Portobello Market, gorgeous. So I bought it for 200,000 uh, pounds. The seller was moving back to Sweden, so chucked in all the furniture. I bought myself a property that was ready to let day one and I let it day one. It was bizarre. Actually, it was far too easy, property one. Um, and that was how I got into property investing. And I I'm, I'm sure it wasn't, yeah, I'm sure over your journey, it's probably not all been as no. as that, has it? So never been that easy. Never <laughs> ever been that first easy. First one was again. the I, absolute easiest. Um, and then it all went downhill from there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think though, because come in 2011, not many people had the ability to borrow. And because I, I didn't have any other borrowing, a bank was prepared to lend me and they lent to me at 75% loan to value. And I was in a very exceptional situation at that time. And also in a very naive situation, I guess. I didn't really check too much out. I would have done in hindsight. Um, and so- Would, from would you have still brought the property today? Um, if you knew what you do now? Today, I wouldn't buy the property. At the time, I'm glad that I bought the property because I bought it for £200,000. Two years later, it was valued at three twenty. Oh, wow. Do you, do you still <laughs> own that property today? Say that again. Do you still, do you still own that property today? Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. And it's yeah. not gone up in value that much, really. It would be around the £350,000 mark. Maybe a little bit more because of no stamp duty and it's it probably would now be the first time buyer range. Um, it brings in £600 net profit a month. Okay, yeah, that's, that's, that's still a good property. Um, you, I'm sure by now you pull all your money out, essentially. Um, <laughs> so it's cash flow really well. So growing your portfolio, kind of talk, talk us through how, how you grew it from that one property to where you are now. So I took £90,000 out of that property, which allowed me to buy my next property. Um, and there was a gap between buying that first property and buying the next property. I actually had £90,000 sat in my account for a while. Uh, I didn't buy my next property until 2015. And just the reason being is that during between... 2011 when I bought that one in 2015 I did my master's whilst I was working full-time and I became a chartered surveyor that just takes over your life you all know that being an accountant right you go through years 
studying and there's nothing else you can do. So I did that 2015. I then bought um, an apartment in Bath using that £90,000. Um, and I put that on a serviced, I, I used that for serviced accommodation. And by this point, because I've now done all of that education around um, my master's and becoming a chartered surveyor, I'd obviously gone up in my career. I understood more the tactics of things. And the reason I could use that apartment as a service accommodation was because the freeholder had badly drafted the lease, really badly drafted the lease. Um, and so I used that as leverage to get agreement to rent as service accommodation. Essentially, there's a little bit of service charge that the freeholder should uh, pay for. And he, at the time they were like, no, you can't use it as service accommodation. And I said, well, hold on a second. You're trying to charge me for your percentage of the service charge, but in the lease, you should actually be picking this up. I said, so I want a refund of X amount of money. I forget how much it was. I said, or I tell you what, I'll pick up that percentage and it's something it's about 8% and you turn a blind eye to the fact that I'm using this as serviced accommodation. In fact, you allow it to happen and we'll just go on with, with that agreement um, for as long as it becomes service accommodation. So I then did that flat up. The freeholder reluctantly agreed, but obviously they didn't want to be out of pocket. One thing that I've never done is I've never had this formalized. And the reason being, if I got it formalized, that freehold would actually be worth something but at the moment whilst the freeholder is owes service charge on the building it's a worthless freehold so that gives me a bit more leverage at the yeah. time by the freehold um so i then used that as service accommodation oh my gosh i made so much money out of that service accommodation i was netting 1800 to 2000 pounds a month well wow. what, what year was this is this before kind of service accommodation blew up kind of yes so this was this was 2015 yeah. to 2018 2019 yeah so this was before kind of every every single course provider uh, was kind of selling this and it was it really started to get overcrowded this is early days in the service accommodation side of it yeah yeah exactly um, so no, so there wasn't really much competition on the market. So out of those two properties, I was rubbing my hands together each month. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that was fantastic. And then um, from, from there, it was about, okay, what next? And so started doing some developments with my development partner, in London, we would do a bit of project management, we would get involved with um, other investors, we would put our own stake in it, we would make a little bit of money, money off the top, or we would do a profit share, so we'd get more money in the bank that way. Um, and I started at that point then to experiment with other ways of making money through property. Around yeah. that time, I set up my own firm of surveyors as well, so went heavily into um, the marketing of that. Bought a flat in Putney, uh, we've since sold that because that's not a very good investment. Our houses were too high. The yield's too low. We lived in that for a little bit of time, um, but then sold that for a big profit, used the money from that 
to invest in the development that we are doing in New Jersey up in uh, near New York City. Um, so essentially, I, what, I, what I tend to do, and it may not sound very exciting for some people, but for me, I quite like to dabble in different things because I'm always looking at new strategies, you know, what works, what pays out some money. Um, and so project management does pay out a little bit of money if you know what you're doing. I've done some of that. Um, I've invested heavily in my parents' portfolios to help them build portfolios so that they've got um, retirement fund and I don't have to be paying for them into retirement. Don't tell them that. That's why they've got property portfolios. So I've kind of like hedged my bets because at some point those property portfolios will come back to me anyway. So it's not really a loss to me by me investing in that. I'll get them back. They've invested in me. Um, so right now, my property portfolio consists of three Vitalet serviced accommodation, the development in New Jersey, and this one now that we've just bought um, in Charleston, which will become an Airbnb by April. Yeah, so it's so a kind of a, uh, Airbnb service accommodation. That's kind of where you kind of lean more towards a little bit at the moment. Um, yes, but also any spare funds that I have, I invest in other people's deals as yeah. well. If I don't fancy doing them, I invest in their deals on a high return. So that also gives me quite a good return on investment. Um, and then the development, again, will double the money that we invested into that property. Um, and then service accommodation is buoyant. But as you say, yeah, it, it can be a really overinflated market. And so you have to be very careful with where you're buying service accommodation, especially now, because, yes, everybody's training in it. But also you've got all of those online um, databases which show what the profits are on your property as well. So people know that. And then they come in and they also list at the same price. So I think it will change as mortgages. If you can keep your mortgages cheaper, sometimes it's actually better just to have it on a simple buy to let model. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned that you've got property in New Jersey. So you're living in America at the moment, aren't you? For those that don't mm -hmm. know. Um, but properties in the UK, how on earth do you manage your portfolio? Um, good question. So in the UK, I have a lot of contacts. I, I worked in the UK property market. I was on the ground in the UK property market for um, eight years. Yeah. So I have a lot of contacts um, in the UK who happy, happily keyhole for me, pick up the phone, send help contractors. Um, my family live in Bath, so they go and check in on those properties in Bath. Um, and so for me, because property management is something I've always done, I run everything off of my master spreadsheet and it has names of all of my contractors, uh, where all the key safes are. So I have key safes hidden around every single property. Um, and I run it like that. I run it from a board. I have my MacBook and I have my Skype phone number. If anybody wants to touch base, I don't answer phones to tenants. So that's not something I do. Um, I have people set up in the UK who will answer the phone and then just simply get on the call to my contractors and send um, people out. That is 
that <laughs> that's how yeah. I manage it. I keep it as simple as I possibly can. Yeah, keep it simple, and I suppose it's, it just kind of reinforces the point of having kind of people you can trust, a good power team, so you know that at the end of the day, the job's being done, and you've got people there that can check it who you trust. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That is so vital. Good electrician, a good plumber, um, and then just a general handyman, and you're sorted. Yeah, so I suppose the only way you get there to that level in terms of having people you can trust is through making mistakes, really, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, so what are some of the biggest mistakes, or not maybe not, I suppose mistakes are a harsh word, what's some of the biggest learning points that have cost you probably money um, in, in fixing that you've kind of encountered and overcome over the years? Mm-hmm. Um, one of the big mistakes that I made probably around 2016 time was that I put too much trust in a saucer and I was trying to buy a property and the whole thing fell through because the saucer had told me the deals of the property I'd been to see the property twice so I knew what the property looked like but then we were going through the convincing process and there were so many questions that were unanswered and every time I went out to the saucer and asked for some information. They would give information, but then it wasn't really, it just didn't feel right. There was something about it that seemed really dodgy. And at the the time, I should have trusted my gut because it got to the point where we were going to exchange on the property. And for some reason, we just stopped getting the answers to the questions that we were asking. And at the point I was like, look, can you just put me in contact with the vendor at this point? I know you don't want to cut out the middleman because you think that I'm going to go behind your back and you're never going to um, get paid. I said, but you don't seem to understand what's going on here. And there was questions over um, where the edge of the boundaries of the property were. There was questions over things that had come up in the building surveys that could quite have easily been ironed out, but we were not getting straight answers. And we'd spent money, we'd spent money sending people up there to quote for things. It was gonna be a really great refurb. And what ended up happening was that the deal fell through last minute because we had nothing concrete to go forward with. been running up solicitors fees we've been running up building surveyors fees and I'd not trusted my gut when the first time that I thought that we were not getting the correct information at that point I should have just pulled out but I kept trying to trust this person kept trusting them kept trusting them kept trusting them and it was just a waste of everybody's time and I was going to use bridging the bridging um because you know when you sign bridging agreements uh at the point that you sign them you're then liable for any fees that they start running up in the process yeah so us pulling out meant that i was still liable for the costs that they'd incurred so we paid bridging costs we paid solicitors fees we paid building surveying fees and i ended up pulling out because i could not trust any of the information that we'd got and i wish i wish i'd pulled out earlier than that and just gone I'm not dealing with this because if someone won't give you the right information there's just something dodgy about the deal and yeah I suppose 100 almost as soon as you kind of 
relationships, especially with sources as well, it's, it's all trust-based, isn't it? So as soon as yeah. you know kind of deep inside, you've got, you've got that feeling that something's not quite right, you kind of, you might want to push ahead. You want to make the deal work. You want to grow your portfolio. You want the end result. But I suppose at that point, when you do start to doubt things, it's better just to pull the plug. Yeah. And I, I was, it was because we were on the hook for a lot of money. And I thought, oh, you know what? It'll work itself out. It was never going to work itself out. And I should have known that the very first time I felt that. Um, and since then, I've been very on the ball with thinking about okay do I feel like this is going right or is there something underlying that mm, doesn't doesn't feel that that great and I guess the difference had been that I'd always done that on behalf of clients and if my gut feeling is that if something isn't going right I will say that that was the first time that that had happened to me in my when my own money was on the line and it was incredibly uh insightful to how differently i'd acted bizarre but yeah now my gosh i'd never do that again yeah i suppose in property you do you kind of you know in business you kind of taught that you know every built relationships just trust people but in property it really does have to be earned but because there's so many people out there um that don't have your best interests at heart no 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 definitely not and I, I think as well you come across so many people who say that they know things but they don't really know things and that can also be hard to swallow and that's that only comes with experience knowing whether that's true or not right yeah yeah I, I know from dealing with people it's just always just be really skeptical of people especially tradesmen and things like that um because we get people around they say you need a new boiler you get a second opinion and it's a 60 pound fix you just need to be skeptical um of what people are telling you really don't you yeah yeah and you know know what's know roughly you have to have some insight into what's going on you can't go into these things blind you have to kind of make make informed decision and and you know you're never going to stop things from going wrong sometimes things go disastrously wrong and um you know you lose your temper at things and things go <laughs> things go downhill but um i guess the final thing is if no one's died then you can always resolve things <laughs> it's about as morbid as it gets yeah no but it's a, it's a good way of looking at things isn't it it's at the end of the day nobody died um so you know we can always we can always improve on this yeah from here yeah Okay, so that, that's certainly a massive key takeaway for people. Um, but for new property investors, what would your kind of top tip or top tips be um, for them? Kind of anything, whether it's kind of what strategy they should use, what guidance can you offer? Mm -hmm. New property investors. Um, always think about what you enjoy doing. There'll be things that you enjoy and there'll be things that you don't enjoy so for a lot of people what I one of the big mistakes that I see them make is that they go on the internet or you go on Instagram for example and you see what other people are investing in and you see that a lot of people are investing in a certain area and you know you decide that that's your area too when actually you don't care about the area you don't care about that type of property it really doesn't excite you the only way that you move forward in 
property. And the only way that I've ever done deals is if I'm excited by the property. If the property feels like it's something that I want to get involved in, then you're going to make all the moves. You'll, you'll move mountains to get it done. And so I think that is a good starting place, right? I'm, I was um, passionate about Bath, so I wanted to buy property in Bath, also purely for selfish reasons, you know? I wanted to be I wanted to be able to have a reason to go home to work because that's where my family was that's why I started buying in Bath the passion was there um why did I buy this property we've just bought in Charleston because the area is awesome it's like the dream property that I've always wanted to own you know and that is motivation to go and get things done if you don't care you're not going to do anything yes yeah, so kind of find something that you enjoy um because at the end of the day, there are going to be times when you kind of feel like giving up, you kind of get bored of things and you just kind of want a project over. So you want something that you do enjoy doing so that you've got the best possible chance at sticking to it. Yeah, yeah, ex exactly. Because it's going to get tough. It's going to be frustrating. There's going to be things that go wrong because inevitably there always is with property. And you're going to have to weather the storm on the bad days and you have to sit, you have to keep having that vision of what's coming what, what are you trying to aim for because when things get bad that's going to have to be the place that you always look towards okay yeah so yeah i, I definitely agree with that so pick something that you're interested in um so for people that kind of want to learn more about you and explore the academy um and all of your online resources what options are available there mm -hmm. so if you come to ncrealestate.com cope.uk um all of the information about my members club is on the website essentially it's for landlords landlords and property investors who have already started building their property portfolio i specialize in leases and mixed use that is my absolute speciality that's what i'm qualified surveyor for i do um leasehold and commercial with residential above that really is the stuff that where i specialize and we look at growing these smaller portfolios into portfolios that hit your goals and again we go back to what i said at the start in that you don't need to be having 10 20 30 40 50 properties instead we need to be optimizing what you've got already and making that work for you so that is what my members club is all about so if you go to the website, you'll find that you can get on the waiting list at the moment. Doors are next open um, on the 25th of January, so not that long to wait. Get yourself on the waiting list. You'll be um, given the option to join first, and there are some good bonuses coming your way if you are on the Members Club waiting list and you join. So do go over and have a look at that. And if you want to find me on social media, it's at Natasha C. Collins on Instagram, Twitter, and Clubhouse. Um, and also on Facebook, I run the Property Investment Mastery Facebook group. Perfect. We will put all the links to all of those in the show notes as well. Um, it's good to hear that you're on Clubhouse as well, the kind of latest <laughs> hype. How have you been finding that so far, Clubhouse? I, To be honest, I just uh, go on when I'm invited to join in a conversation. Yeah. I find, I don't know about you, but sometimes I get overwhelmed by all the different social media channels yeah. that we've got going on. And so... I tend to put actually most of my information out on the NC podcast, which is my podcast. And it's a fantastic place for me to kind of air everything that's going on. 
Um, and then from there, I, I pop it out on different social media platforms, but I've only just joined Clubhouse, so I'm feeling my way around it. Yeah, yeah, it'd be, it'd be interesting to see kind of what we exactly how it sticks and how how we will end up using it. Um, but yeah, time will tell about that. But thank you very much for joining us on the Just Joshin Show. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely, tons of fantastic information there that I'm sure a lot of people will find valuable. The link to all of your social medias and your website, we're going to put in the show notes so that everybody can find it. Um, but thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you, Josh. I really appreciate you inviting me. Thank you very much for tuning in to this week's Just Joshin Show. I hope you've enjoyed this week's podcast and have certainly learned something from it. To make sure you don't miss out on any future episodes, make sure you hit that subscribe or follow button to make sure that you get notified as soon as we post a new episode. Happy listening.